If you take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, Luke 22. Appreciate the opportunity of being here. Um, Very quickly, I'll share this because I knew I'd have the microphone rather than than speak during the sharing time. I thought uh, I'll just start with this. It's interesting. God is such a protector of us, and yet he also allows pain into our lives. I remember two, two different situations involving driving. One was an accident that Lee and I were in in 1982, maybe. It was very, we were the car that stopped the police chase speeder guy in the intersection where you see those shows where they get stopped, and that was us, and went through that painful ordeal that God truly used in a wonderful way. And then just uh, several, about a month ago or so, I was coming back from Tennessee. And, you know, most men, it's A to B or A to, you know, A to C without going through B. It's just like, you want to, so I made this in like a record time, was trying to. That doesn't mean speeding necessarily, necessarily. But um, so I get up at four o'clock in the morning or 3.30 or four, and I'm going to leave my sister's house. And um, God just, in a special way, because he wants to do this sometimes for us, just to, Say, I'm here. I'm here. So I pull into the speedway there in Chattanooga to fill up, and I and I turn turn the jeep off, get up, fill it up, get back in. Just dead, just like dead, like nothing, no lights, no nothing. Just I tried that a couple of times. I'm like, the first thought that came to my mind, and this is a God thing, is it wouldn't have been me probably. Was God, thank you for whatever this is. Thank you for this delay. If I don't even get to go home today because this thing's just like whatever. And I opened the hood. This is a, mat, no mat, a matter of just like three or four minutes. I open the hood. I take the battery terminal and go, eh, just to give it a little jiggle, shut it, get back in, <clears throat> fires right off. I come home. Could, okay, I get off at Weston. All the way home almost. I come around a turn right there at Georgetown Road and all of a sudden, probably 15 cars deep, we're we're stopping. Within a few moments, five minutes, three minutes, four minutes, a very horrific accident. No police were not there, no nobody was there. It was just people getting out of cars to help. And God just went, that's why. Could he have caused me to lock my car, keys in my car like I did one time before? And then I left a crack in the window, so I was able to borrow a Starbucks broomstick and open it up from the other side. Could he have done it that way? Sure. And I would have never associated the two. But he brought to my mind this idea of giving him thanks in that moment and connected that dot at the end of the trip. And it was just, you know, God is involved in our lives. He says he will accomplish, in Psalms, he says he will accomplish what concerns me. That's a, that's a sweet promise to land on. So that's the share time. Luke 22, this morning I want, to take a, uh, want us to, to take away from Peter's exchange with Jesus just prior to Jesus being arrested and then the scene in the courtyard just outside of where Jesus is on trial uh, as he sits around this fire. Uh, and so let's just, uh, I want to read through this passage and then I want to go back through and pull out some points that I hope will connect this and then I'll kind of recap it at the end. I really kind of struggle with this. I hope this makes some uh, sense and I'm trusting that God will uh, use it to encourage and edify us. That's my desire. So Luke 22, you can follow along with me as I read. I encourage you to bring Bibles. I, will, I, think we have, I don't think we put this big chunk of text on the wall. 
So you listen closely or take your Bibles and turn or take your phone and turn to Luke 22. Beginning in verse 31, Simon, Jesus is speaking to Peter and he says, Simon, Simon. This is interesting. We're not going to talk about this or spend time with this. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. It, that's somewhat perplexing, isn't it? That Satan would come in to God and, and, and was demanding permission to sift him like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Jesus tells him, that your faith may not fail and you when, you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go to both to prison and to death. It's Peter, you know, he's just like right out of his mouth before he thinks about anything. He's just like, yeah, you're, I'm, I'm ready to die with you. In verse 34, and he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. Denied three times that you know me. Jump down to verse 54. After uh, having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest, but Peter was following at a distance. And they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together. Peter was sitting among them and a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, this man was with him too. Speaking of Jesus, Peter with Jesus. Verse 57, but he denied it. Saying, woman, I don't, I don't know him. A little later, another saw him and said, you are one of them too. But Peter said, man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he was a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. A rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Would you pray with me as we proceed? Dear God, as we've prayed, and I appreciate my brother's prayer, God, help me to speak your words. God, may they completely be your words. God, out of the way so that you may be seen, you may be heard. God, would you touch our hearts and touch our minds, our souls and spirits, and even bodies, God, we pray. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Um, by saying something that I've often said that the Holy Spirit is the best, worst thing that can ever happen to you. The best, worst thing that can ever happen to you. And I say that simply in reference to the, to the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit through this thing we've called conviction. The scripture calls conviction. How often have you, I know I have, and I, how often have you tried to battle with the Holy Spirit over some particular situation or concern of life, be it thought, word, or deed, that he's putting his holy finger on, and you're going, yeah, no, because you don't want to deal with that because your flesh likes it. And the spirit and the flesh, as we know, because Scripture teaches us, constantly conflict. The word instructs us, among other things that the Holy Spirit's going to do, is that he's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. John 16, 7 and 8, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. 
And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Can we just stop for a minute? Leave that passage up there, and let's just look at this for just a minute. This is absolutely fascinating. Think about these words of Jesus. You've just spent three years of your life with Jesus. Listening to, touching, watching amazing things from water being turned into wine to sea storms calmed by a simple word to seeing a widow's son, her only son, being carried out in a coffin, being raised up to life out of that coffin, given back to his mother. You've seen all these things. And now he's telling you that you're going to be better off if he's gone. I'm going to be going like, I'm, probably, I'm going to be Peter. I promise you I'll be Peter. And go like, that's kind of stupid, Jesus. You're going to go away and we're going to be better off? So I asked the question, why? Jesus actually tells us because according to Jesus, listen to this and underline this in your Bibles, it is to our advantage. It is to our advantage, Jesus said, that he go away. And don't miss this because if, if realized and embraced, it can transform your walk in Christ. Jesus clearly tells us that the, that the Holy Spirit from time to time, from the time that he arrives, can do more for you than you just than me staying here and you following me. Think about that again. The Holy Spirit can do more for you and for me than Jesus could if he was here with us all the time. And we can get into some things of why that is, and I'm not going to do that right now. But simply say that it's because of the Holy Spirit, who Jesus calls the helper, will live within us to teach us and to guide us and to, yes, convict. Folks, listen. Why is the Holy Spirit going to convict? Because sin matters. Sin matters. And what I fear is that the American church culture, what it is doing is, do, is diminishing the darkness of and depreciating the destructive power of sin in our lives. Sin cuts and it wounds and it poisons and decays and blackens and bruises and crushes and strangles and deafens and blinds and dulls our senses. In the words of Susanna Wesley, the mother of 19 children, imagine that Mother's Day mother. Oh, 19 kids. Dad was never home. <laughs> That's not true. Including Charles and John Wesley. Listen to her definition of sin. It is priceless as she's taught her kids. Whatever weakens your reason impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may seem in itself. The word of Hebrews 3 says to us, take care, brethren. And the writer of Hebrews, just a chapter earlier, refers to us as holy brethren. There's no mistaking these are believers. 
Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. What would cause that? We sit here and we think, what would ever cause me to walk away from God and to renounce the faith that I've professed to believe? What would, what would that, what could possibly? But encourage, he says, one another day after day as long as it's called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin matters. Jesus has told us that in the last days there's going to be a massive falling away. Why? How? Sin matters. Sin has a, a hardening effect on the heart. You don't, it doesn't happen in a day, in a moment. You don't just sin and all of a sudden your heart becomes hardened. It's a pattern of life. It's accepting that sin and, and not, not listening to what the Holy Spirit wants to say when he's convicting. We can choose to not listen to the the voice of God's spirit, and by so doing, we will quench him. And we squelch his voice to the point of possibly no longer walking in faith, Hebrews is telling us. This is powerful. It's a sober warning. There are no little sins that don't matter because they grow and they harden. This doesn't say anything about just, hey, just stay away from the big things, man, because then your heart will be hard. No, it's just sin. Sin is powerful. It is the, the singular reason that God sent himself, Jesus, God with skin, to take care. It was to take care of sin's power over us, death. My sin placed Jesus on the cross and his love kept him there. The overarching message today is this, that when the rooster crows, and that is actually a title of this message I would give it is a rooster crows, and that is the sweet sound of conviction. It's kind of an oxymoron, the sweet sound of conviction. But we need to embrace, I'm kind of jumping ahead, that's okay. We need to embrace the rooster's crow. That spirit of God that is convicting us. So the overarching message today is that when the rooster crows in your life, and the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, when he is convicting, when, as, as Peter says, he remembered, and you remember when he speaks to your heart, this is the way, and walk in it, or stop doing this, and don't do this, and embrace him, embrace the, the rooster crow, bless it, welcome it, say, just say, thank you, God, for stopping me and showing me. He is jealous in the purest sense for you and for me. Turn over to Acts 24. If you're taking notes, some thoughts here that I want to leave with you from this passage this morning. And the first point is this, that fear cripples our faith. Fear cripples our faith. And we'll try and tie these all together at the very end. I find it interesting as Paul stood, and I shared a little bit of this several, I mean, a few months ago, I think when I was here last time, kind of as an outline, and I'm not going to give that all to you right here, but as Paul stood before Felix and his wife Drusilla, he's sharing with them about faith in Jesus Christ. Something Paul said made Felix just stop. Say, That's all I want to hear. Acts 24, verses 24 and 25. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. 
I also think it's fascinating that Paul includes this in his conversation about faith in Christ Jesus. Very significant. But as he was discussing Paul, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Felix became frightened. Fear. And he said, go away for the present. And when I find time, I'll summon you. And he never did. I would submit to you that we often, if we want to bring this analogy into our lives, we often do precisely the same thing that Felix did in our walk with Christ and particularly in relation to the voice of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to hear that. I don't want to talk about that sin issue in my life. And we try and stop and plug up our ears and plug up our hearts and close our minds to that what we might think of as a nagging voice of God that's trying to help us. And what was it that led to Felix's putting an end to Paul speaking to him about faith? Fear. Fear. I can only speculate, I think, that possibly what concerned him most in that particular conversation was the judgment of God that was to come. Isn't it wonderful to know that as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you put your faith and trust in him, we do not have to fear that judgment of God. Because Jesus' love, keeping him on that cross, took the judgment for us. <laughs> We're afraid to hear what it is God would say to us through his spirit his helper that he's given us to, to do this or go here or, or say this or see this person. Stop what you're doing. Give this up. Surrender. Die to self. The words of that song that, that came to mind years ago about sometimes you ask me to give away that dollar when you think it's my, when I know that it's my last. Sometimes you ask me to go to my knees and have a talk with you about my past. Sometimes you ask me to stop what I'm doing when I think it's what I do best. Sometimes you ask me to go one more mile when what I really want to do is just rest. Sometimes you ask me to go and say a word while the dirt is still fresh on my face. All these things that God might ask us to do. I remember as a young kid, and I think I've shared this many times, so you long timers, this is not new to you, but I, I was absolutely petrified. As a young kid, I knew that God was calling me to ministry of some sort. I thought it would be missions. And in fact, uh, you know, I've been able to use cross-cultural, my cross-cultural degree from college in, in many ways. But I was scared absolutely to death because, you know, God's going to tell you to do something you just really hate and don't want to do, right? That's just how God is. That's, that's how he's supposed to be, right? <clears throat> Wrong. But I knew God was going to ask me to go to the Soviet Union. And I'm like, God, you know, growing up in Cold War days, man, the last thing you want to do is, you know, I, have, I pictured them having missiles aimed at us ready to push the button, you know. That's just, that's that, that that mindset you grew up with as a kid. Like they had these red telephones, like the bat, bat phones, you know what I'm saying? I, I, I connected those dots. You know, our president and they had red button, they had red phones. Hey, we're, we're bombing you. And so I was just so fearful that, yes, God was going to ask me to go to the Soviet Union and sneak across the borders and all that stuff. It scared me to death. I didn't want to hear that. That took that moved me into college. Fear of having to ask forgiveness from someone. 
it can be tough. Fear of being embarrassed, fear of what people are going to think about you, fear, fear, fear of all different shades and colors. Frank Borum, uh, rather than write this, I thought I would just read this directly to you. Um, Frank was a British pastor in New Zealand and Australia. He's an essayist, and I thoroughly enjoy his reading or his writings. In rummaging among some old volumes, do we have this picture on the wall? Pop it up there for me. There we go, if you can see that. This is just a piece of this place. In rummaging among the old volumes and guidebooks this afternoon, I came upon a picture of the high rocks at Turnbridge Wells. Near to the home of my boyhood, just across the great open common and down a winding lane were a number of massive and famous rocks. Visitors came and still come some miles to see them. This is our Seneca Rocks, okay? Visitors came and still come to see from miles away. As a child, I loved to spend a morning there. I dare say if I were again to visit them, I should find them painfully stunted and small. But to my childish fancy, they pierced the very skies. My brain reeled as sta- standing, uh, excuse me, my brain reeled as standing, where am I at? Standing the clefts between them, standing in the clefts between them, I gazed upward to the top. I have forgotten all but one. That one was called the Warning Rock. It derived its name from the uh, the admonitory inscription carved upon it. The rock with its silent message inspired a famous sermon by Dr. Isaac Watts, the writer of so many of our best hymns. And the inscription on the rock reads, and I actually found a picture with this inscription chiseled into there at Turnbridge Wells. Infidel, who with thine finite wisdom wouldst grasp things infinite and dost become a scoffer at God's holiest mysteries. Behold this rock, then tremble and rejoice. Tremble for he who formed this mighty mass could in his justice crush thee where thou art. (laughs) Rejoice that still his mercy spares thee. How often as a child, Frank writes, I stood with an awe that almost accounted to terror before that huge and frowning mass. Sometimes I even fancied that it was moving and was about to grind me to powder. I used to dream about that rock. Sometimes I woke with a cry just as it was falling upon me. Sometimes it was even following me. Scores of times I've been crushed beneath its cruel and ponderous bulk. To make matters worse, the dreadful rock occasionally visited me at mealtimes. A good old soul, laudably anxious for my edification and improvement, presented me on my fifth birthday with a tea plate which bore, by way of adornment, a faithful and realistic photograph of the warning rock. The inscription stood out boldly, almost savagely, from the picture. By an irony of fate, that presentation plate was only laid for me on high days and holidays. On high days and holidays, therefore, the festive spirit forsook me. My voice was hushed and my behavior subdued. I do not think it once occurred to me that the inscription on the rock had been carved by a human hand. I took it for granted that the lines were engraved by the same awful finger by which the Ten Commandments were inscribed. I remember wondering... Isn't this amazing? I remember wondering whether the calligraphy on the tables of stone was as shocking as that of the lines upon the rock. And then I shuddered lest the blasphemous thought should have deepened the guilt of my infidelity and increased the probabilities of my destruction. 
And the last line is, this is so precious. I laugh today, Frank writes, at the fallacy that led to my fear. Perhaps one of these days we shall see that all our fears were based on fallacies. Do you realize there's nothing to fear with Christ? Nothing to fear. No drive home, no accident, no illness. Do you realize that if you're following him and you're in a relationship with him, you're in his hands. There's nothing apart from sin that can disrupt that. Back to this powerful thing. Would you notice Peter's fear here? In chapter 22, verse 54 of Luke, having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was, did you recognize that and see that? Following at a distance. Following at a distance. Why would Peter be following at a distance? Fear. Fear. He saw what was happening to Jesus and thought wisely in the wisdom of the flesh, keep your distance. Keep your distance. Listen to the ultimate driver behind fear. Listen, excuse me, the ultimate driver behind fear is self-preservation. Not only in a life and death sense, but even in a more sinister sense, pride. Pride. Peter was bent on not being associated with Jesus to the degree that at one point in the courtyard scene, we hear a bystander say to him in, in Matthew 26, in Matthew's version of this, surely you two are one of them for even the way you talk gives you away. And I have to believe that the next verse implies to me that Peter was talking like a, like a follower of Christ would talk. You know, like, uh, you know, maybe however that sounded, it was, he was not like the rest of the guys around the fire. Because the very next verse tells us, then he began to curse and swear. I don't know the man. And whatever possibly cursings and swearings he used to go along with that. For even the way you talk gives you away. A rooster crowed. A rooster crowed. A second point is this. Distance learning fails in the end. No pun intended. Distance learning fails in the end. That's why teachers are crying out now. Let's just end school now and come back in the fall and do it well. If you were following Jesus, and this is important. If you were following Jesus from a distance now, well, what does it mean to follow Jesus from a distance? You're just not wanting to get too close. You're not really wanting to listen to what the Holy Spirit has to say to you. You're not spending time in his word. You're not spending time worshiping him. You're really... Anything you can do that's just really kind of, yeah, I'm okay with you know, this church kind of thing and I can come and I can leave, but him actually living in and through me and me submitting and yielding and surrendering and dying to self and stopping the things that he wants me to stop. I want to keep that at a distance. Things that would preserve myself, my pleasures, my, my comforts, my enjoyment. I don't want those things to get damaged. Distance learning fails in the end. If you're following Jesus from a distance now, 
This is important. You have already put yourself in a position of denial. If, you've, if you're following him from a distance now, you've already placed yourself in a position to deny. I would challenge you with this, particularly in light of the, the heightened amount of truly just biblically prophetic things that are being fulfilled in the day in which we live. We're getting near Jesus' return. We're getting near to seeing difficult days even in our nation and as a world to be a Christ follower, to be a, a, a non-distance, a close Jesus follower. We're not going to be people's best friends a lot of times. I'll just say it like that. If you're following Jesus from a distance now, wake up. Cry out to Jesus. Show me what it means to be close, Jesus. Do whatever you have to do in my life to show me what it means to be walking and following you hard. Peter admonishes us with these words. He says, and Peter, later on in, life, later on in years when he was writing, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found with Christ's return. Be Diligent to be found spotless and blameless by him when he returns. A rooster crowed. Fear cripples our faith. Distance learning fails in the end. Third point is this, that there's hope. There's hope post-failure. There's hope post-failure. Simon, Simon, this is so sweet. This is before anything happened. In Luke 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but once I have prayed, but I have prayed for you, thank you, Jesus, that your faith may not fail. And you, listen to this, and I underlined it, when once you have turned again. Jesus is saying, Peter, you're going to fail. You're going to deny me. But when you come back again, he's telling him ahead of time. He knows you. Do you understand that? He knows me. He knows when I'm going to blow it royally. When I'm going to say that word that I'm, the Holy Spirit's going, you got to take that back. You got to fix that. I can count, hopefully, I think on one hand, the times I've lied, knowingly lied to my wife in 37 years of marriage, which we just celebrated a few days ago. I hate those times because I can't live with it. It's the best Best worst thing that ever happened to you is the Holy Spirit because he wants us to be clean and walk in cleanness and be spotless and blameless because of what Jesus did for us on the cross that enables us to be spotless and blameless. He's our helper. When once you have turned again, these words are of a, of a gracious, merciful, loving, gentle, understanding, forgiving, patient, ancient of days, king, are so moving. He's saying, Mark, I know you're going to fail. To live out faith at times. And you, once you've turned again, it's hope. It's hope post-failure. I'm not rejected. I'm not discarded. I'm not a failure. He didn't stop loving me, seeing me, using me. Because he says, when once you've turned again, Peter, Strengthen your brothers. Peter, you help them understand more about me and what you've experienced through this courtyard experience thing here. Help them know because they all left. 
except I think John, actually, we found out I read in a passage recently, uh, it was brand new to me. John, I think, I was in the courtroom, in, the, in, the, in that meeting. It's fascinating. Wish we knew more about that. Help them grow stronger because of what you've learned, Peter, when once you have turned again. A rooster crowed. Sweeter than the rooster's crow of conviction is the sweetness of obedience. Fourth point would be obedience renews our faith. David and Nathan. Nathan comes to David. David has committed his sin with Bathsheba. And Nathan, his prophet, comes to confront him, tells him the story of a, a selfish man, a rich man who had massive herds. And he came to a poor man only to, who only had one lamb and he killed that one man's lamb. He was not going to kill his one of his massive flock. He was going to instead take and kill this poor man's one lamb to feast. And David's anger burned to the degree that he said, that man is deserving of death. And then David's prophet in the true prophet fashion says, David, you are that man. And here's how God put it. Very interesting. And speaking to David through Nathan, he says to David, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? Think about that. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? When we refuse to listen to God's spirit of conviction, we are truly despising the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight. It's powerful. But David, a man after God's own heart, perfect? Question mark? Absolutely not. Far from it, like you and me. In fact, David was an adulterer. He was a murderer. Shocking. In a recent Bible study, the church Lee and I are attending, pastor shared about this, and I read through this passage in 2 Samuel. David had mighty men. You familiar with David's mighty men? There were 37 of them in all. He had about five or six, seven really top dog guys. I mean, they were the, they were the, <laughs> they were the bomb. And then he had like 30 others that were his mighty men. They were his like regiment of close-knit all around David. We got your back. We got your back. We got your back. And he names this long list, names every one of these guys. And the very last one, this was news to me. I didn't even realize this. was a guy by the name of Uriah the Hittite. (laughs) That rascal David killed one of his mighty men. It just deepened that disdain for sin and how low we can go when we allow ourselves to feed this flesh and to resist the spirit of God's voice in our lives. Yet David was a man after God's own heart. This is so, so sweet. God is a God of the heart. He doesn't look the other way when we sin, but he does know our hearts. And the heart that he has given us when we come to him does not want to maintain a sinful life. It's a real great indicator, folks. Listen, to ask yourself this question, are you bothered by sin in your life? Because when you are not, I'm talking about black and white. I'm talking about black and white, not opinions and not ideas and thoughts. I'm talking about black and white sin. When that doesn't bother you, you need to wake up. I'm kind of getting even stronger than I would maybe say, 
you need to wake up. There's a real, real, real good probability that nobody's home. And by that, I mean that the Holy Spirit's not there. And if he's not there, you're not there. And I say that in a, in a loving way, in a kind way, because it's, the stakes are too high. Not, not to say it for you like it is. Cry out to Jesus. Say, God, I've been doing this church thing, but I don't think I got it. I don't think I got you. I think I got church. And that's not what he's called us to. He's called us to himself. I'm so thankful God looks at our hearts. So our hearts that he has given us don't want to live in sin. And so we're bothered by sin. We may still sin from time to time, but <laughs> we're sorry. And we want to ask his forgiveness. And there needs to be a shortened fuse between the time that sin occurs and the time that we are asking for forgiveness. Real close. Like, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. My encouragement to you this day is to welcome the convicting voice of God's Spirit when He makes sin known to you, and He will. And He will, because we've been told that's what He came to do. And know the sweetness of obedience. I find it extremely meaningful, something that only Luke records here in his account of Peter in this courtyard in verse 20, of 60 of Luke 22. And you have this picture on the wall. You can go ahead and place that up there if it's there. Is it there first or second there? This What a great old painting. And I sure should be able to tell you who painted it, but I can't. I don't know what all you can make out. Yes, you can. There's Peter, the rooster. I love this accuser over here on, the, on your right pointing the finger, you're one of them too. And now please notice in the back, Jesus. Only Luke records this, but Peter said, man, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about to this accuser. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. He had told him, before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. He didn't weep, folks, because he was sorry he got caught. He wept because he was wanting to repent of his sin, of denying Jesus. Jesus looked at Peter was not, I told you so. See, ha ha, na 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 na. That's not Jesus. It's a beautiful painting that portrays, that's okay, you can leave it gone, that portrays a compassionate, merciful heart of Jesus for you and for me, who will fail at times. A rooster crowed, the sweet sound of conviction. If I were to recap this, I'd say, listen, the fear of man, self-preservation, happiness, cripples your faith. The fear of God wanting to just do something always just kind of like a, being ugly on your life. That, that fear of God, that's not healthy either. Distance learning fails in the end. Hence, guard your hearts and minds by spending more and more time strengthening your relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen to his Holy Spirit's voice and obey him when he speaks, when he convicts. Live in hope post-failure. Jesus will always use the returning heart. Obedience renews our faith. When the Holy Spirit taps your heart, remember regarding a sin issue, embrace him, bless him, thank him, obey him. I'll leave you with this question. This is 
close to home. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a, a jolt question. When is the last time you were made aware by the voice of the Holy Spirit that sin was present in your life? Recent, and don't, don't ask answers. Ask yourself that question. Has it been soon, recent? Is that a normal part of your relationship with Christ? Because I believe it needs to be. Because I don't see anybody in this room that's probably, how can I say this politely? We're all sinners. And we need cleaned regularly. And that's what he wants to do. So it's pretty regularly in my life, I know, virtually daily. <laughs> He's awfully so kind. I could say, teach some more on this Holy Spirit thing because he likes to use a yellow flag before he uses the red flag and before he uses the black flag. The yellow flag. He, you think the Holy Spirit would like to stop us before we sin? Absolutely. He likes to do that and he wants to do that and he tries to do that, but we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So when the Holy Spirit speaks, learn, shorten the fuse again. Listen, catch him on the yellow flag and just say, thank you, God. Thank you for stopping me from looking at that, listening to that, saying that, doing that, and walk in obedience and just experience the sweetness of obedience from your heavenly Father who still looks down and says to us when we walk in obedience, this is my child in whom I'm well pleased.